Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and we discuss issues in the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. Got a great show for you today because we're talking about hemp. That's right. We have not spent a lot of time in our hundred and some episodes here on the Business of Agriculture. We have not talked a lot about hemp. I have a guy in the hemp business. He's David Hasnauer. He is with the, a company called Greenpoint Research. He's a 32-year-old guy with a farm background in Georgia who uh, then has a degree in marketing, is an Army veteran. Yay, thank you very much for your service. Paratrooper, got out of the military in 2013, and then uh, went to law school at Florida State. So he's got this company, Greenpoint Research, there in the hemp industry. He's going to tell us all about hemp, the history of hemp, what happens with hemp, how the whole business works, the legalization, where the market is, where the uh, opportunities are, his business model. I am so excited about this. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Damian. I really look forward to sharing Greenpoint's story and uh, telling people a little bit about the exciting market opportunity in hemp. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, a lot of my listeners, you know, they maybe sell feed, seed, chemical, fertilizer, machinery. They're in ag finance, crop insurance. They might be farmers. They're ag people, food business, food processing, meat. You know, we cover a lot of ground here in the business of agriculture, and hemp is one of those things that we haven't done a lot with but I see it as a growth industry within agriculture. And I want you to give me some history on hemp. And obviously if anybody out here listening, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and just be real honest. If you're, you know, I make jokes about it myself. Oh yeah. You know, hemp milk, you drink the fluid and smoke the carton. That's not what we're doing. That's a funny joke. Granted, my crowds love it, but we're not talking about marijuana. We're not talking about a bunch of stoners hanging out here, uh, you know, uh, picking a couple of leaves off the roadside and getting high in their Chevy Nova. We're talking about an industry and a product that has some real upside. So I think that this is such a neat thing. I have told everybody that some of these acres that you think are, you know, I hear doing corn and soybeans, they're going to be in hemp because there's a growth uh, opportunity for it. So give me some background, David. Yeah, absolutely. It is a, a huge growth sector. And, uh, I think you, you know, to know where you're going, you got to know where you've been. And that's the kind of the story with hemp here. Uh, you know, hemp literally brought us to America. It was the sales on the ships that got the first, uh, settlers here. Uh, it's been a integral part of America's history. Uh, 1630s, Virginia, it was required by law to grow hemp for farmers. Thomas Jefferson was a huge proponent of hemp. He greatly preferred hemp to tobacco because of uh, the positive effects on the soil and the ability to grow it multiple times on the same plot. He actually invented something called the hemp break, which was the first hemp processing tool. And he uh, refused to patent it because he thought it was too important for the growth of the nation in its early stages. So, you know, hemp was, has been a major agricultural commodity in the U.S. before. In 1850, according to the census, there were over 200,000 acres of hemp grown in the U.S. Tell me, when was that? 1850. In 1850, the number of hemp acres again were what? Well, it's 200,000. Okay, so you're talking about a, a budding country. You know, we had not even conquered the West. In 1850, Indiana was just barely a state where I live. So you're not talking about a lot, you know, millions of millions of acres of corn and soybeans. We didn't have soybeans back then. So we had hemp before we had soybeans. As I point out all the time, you think hemp is some exotic thing. It's been around, as you say, for a long time. We didn't grow soybeans until after World War II. Uh, so there, there's always this idea that, oh, well, that's some crazy stuff. No. We didn't grow soybeans until really the 1950s. There's 
Kernza, there's uh, Kale, there's all these other oddball sort of things up there. I think hemp has got a real opportunity. So the history of it has been around forever. We used it mostly then for fiber. We didn't really use it for the oil back then, am I right? That's correct. So the, the CBD oil is the, the new market opportunity, you know, and that's, that's where the, a lot of the farmers are really getting uh, tremendous uh, per acre yields uh, today is, is with the CBD boom. It's uh, you see it everywhere. It's, you know, being sold all over the place and being touted for a million different uh, positive effects. And while it does have tremendous therapeutic value, I think there's still some buyer beware uh, sentiment that needs to go with it. There, you know, in an area where there's ultimately low regulation and, you know, you have a lot of people come out of the woodwork with, uh, marketing programs for CBD and stuff. So it's, uh, while it's, it's very exciting on the oil front, it definitely still has major industrial applications though. You know, I think that the history of hemp is going to be kind of the future of hemp as we, we go forward. There was a, you know, obviously, like I said, it was a major crop in the 1850s. Then, there was a presidential election in 1888 where it actually played a pretty pivotal role in the election uh, between the two presidential candidates. And ultimately that was what led to the prohibition in 37 in the marijuana stamp tax act is uh, cotton and timber lobbyists were upset about the outcome of an 1888 presidential election and reform moving all the way up to the 1937 uh, marijuana stamp tax act, which made it basically illegal to grow. And which is funny about so Go this, goes, this goes to the 1880s and then to the 1930s. So fast forward then, it was, it was basically, you said the timber uh, lobby didn't like hemp and who else? The cotton lobby because okay, of, because of fiber production. Okay. So hemp was being used mostly for fiber back then. As you said, we used it for sales. So it was just a, we're going to, we're going to lobby against this and make it illegal to stamp out our competition. Uh, essentially. Yeah. That was how it got started. The, the prohibition moved towards or how we started to move towards prohibition was uh, other business competitors were upset about some subsidies that Harrison had put into his presidential platform in that election versus Garfield. <laughs> okay. So then by, you said, bring me forward to the 1930s. Cause I know that, here in Huntington County, Indiana, as a child on the farm, I was told that in the southern part of the county, there was a time in the 1920s that there were hemp farms, and it was, I believed, or I was told, for to make rope uh, for military use because it was a big uh, usage for the fiber for rope. Would that have any basis in fact? Uh, actually, it does, and it's further along than the 20s. So the 37, 1937 Stamp Tax Act makes it functionally illegal. Well, in 43, obviously, the war effort for World War II is in full movement, and the USDA actually issued $300 million of wartime bonds to grow 300,000 acres and process 300,000 acres of hemp to deliver to sailors that needed rope, uniforms, and other uh, commodities. So even six years post uh, ban on hemp, the government saw such an overwhelming utility in it that they financed production facilities and encouraged the growth to support the wartime effort. Okay, so we did use hemp, and it was happening in the 40s. I was told that as well. So then what happened? So then we get through World War II, and then uh, the lobbies against hemp say, we don't want that crap anymore, uh, ban it again? Essentially, yeah. You have the, the DuPont, uh, member of the DuPont family was Nixon's secretary of state, and it was a direct competitor, uh, essentially, to some of the you know synthetic fibers and other things on the market. And it got lumped in with its uh, cousin marijuana and became federally illegal in the Controlled Substance Act in the 50s and put an outright prohibition on it, not just a functional one with the extra tax. 
<laughs> All right. So here we are today. Somehow we decided just last year uh, that we're okay with it. It's part of the farm bill. And there was some other legislation kind of bring me to speed on that. Yeah. So, you know, hemp uh, reemerged onto the scene in 2014 as part of the 2014 farm bill, which authorized limited pilot projects in conjunction with land grant universities or state departments of agriculture. So we've seen a pretty steady proliferation of, of hemp since then. And it's a lot of the challenges of any growth industry. Uh, you know, when you, you talk about a huge growth segment, it, it's there because there's no infrastructure in place. It's totally unlike uh, alcohol prohibition, where uh, at the time of alcohol prohibition, Schlitz, Coors, and Anheuser-Busch accounted for one-third of the American GDP. So these are huge institutions. And so when they reopened their doors, it was just business as usual post-prohibition. Well, we don't have that. We don't have all the, the critical processing infrastructure, the buying points, and all the other familiar farm agriculture infrastructure that you see in other crops in existence for hemp. So that's a, a natural deterrent to the, the rapid growth of the industry. And even with that, we're still seeing the industry grow by leaps and bounds. We don't have river barges ready to haul this uh, product like we do for corn and soybeans and wheat and oats and uh, whatever else. Uh, we don't have uh, a lot of processing plants. There's a lot of things that are different when this, you know, so when did it really wasn't there another legislative thing that happened and it made it so that now there's, and it was just a year or so ago, it wasn't 2014, am I right? No, is that so on December 20th of 2018, uh, President Trump signed the 2018 Farm Bill, and that was the full uh, legalization of hemp uh, outside of just pilot projects. So that makes it a commercial agricultural product and gives it crop insurance protections at the federal level. It gives it uh, protection to transport the material from state to state, so interstate commerce protections. And then it, it ultimately removed it from the Controlled Substance Act, which opens up lots of avenues for banking and other traditional resources to come into the space. Got it. So you're a smart young guy. And tell me how this whole thing happened for you. Yeah. So I, I got out and originally I uh, got out of the army in 2013 and uh, knew I wanted to get into the cannabis space. I saw it as a huge growth sector and we started getting out and getting involved. And, you know, our, our guy that's our chief agronomist for Greenpoint Research today was already out there and I started working with him initially. And so we were going through the motions, trying to figure out where the best market opportunities were in medical marijuana. And ultimately we decided the best market opportunities weren't there. They were in him. You know, we kind of saw the writing on the wall. It's interesting with medical marijuana, you only get access to one of the cannabinoids, which is the THC, which is the psychoactive component that everyone knows about. But there are so many other cannabinoids in hemp other than THC, like CBD, CBG, CBN, and all these have amazing therapeutic effects. Okay, real quick, cannab cannabinoid for the, for the person that has an agricultural economics degree and not a marijuana uh, studies degree. You know, I, I, I don't smoke weed. I also, I, I have I had friends that were stoners in college, but uh, I'm not sure they knew what a cannabinoid was either. But, you know, Android, and cannabinoid. Paranoid. So it's really just discovered in the 80s. So we actually have a system in our body that's co-located with our neurological system to receive cannabinoids. Our body actually produces natural cannabinoids called endocannabinoids. And so what's in hemp and marijuana are phytocannabinoids. But we have CB1 and CB2 receptors that are all along our neurological system that fundamentally regulate cellular activity. And each one of these cannabinoids elicits a different uh, molecular response at the cellular level and then thereby has different therapeutic effects. And so we're just now getting into the value chain of all these different cannabinoids. We're really only focused on THC and CBD right now as a market, 
but there are over 80 of these things that all have different effects in the body and have different uh, value propositions. Okay. So you looked at mer medical marijuana first. You thought, man, this has to be the way to go. And then you quickly said, nah, maybe not. And so you decided, no, it's going to be more about the fiber and the oil. Is that what I'm understanding? So it does. It has applications into uh, a lot of spaces. So right now, the, the there's so much of the CBD is the driving the market in the hemp space. I think you, you, we saw a huge growth in, from 2018 to 2019. We went from about 60,000 acres nationwide in 2018 to 180,000 acres nationwide in 2019. Total market cap of 1.2 billion in, in 2018 to a market cap of 5 billion in 2019. Wait, you're saying the market cap for for CBD oil based hemp is going is $5 billion now? Yes, this year. So it went, and we went from 1.2 to 5 billion in a year. That's, that's impressive. So real quickly, your company, Greenpoint Research, uh, you are going to pursue it from the, from the processing and the uh, oil and fiber side, not from the medical marijuana side, right? You, you've, that's your strategic decision, right? Yeah. So we're, we're a uh, traditional ag interest. We have, you know, it's row crop farm. We're, you know, raised beds we use, uh, you know, traditional agricultural implements. It's not grown indoor and in warehouses. I mean, this is a, an agricultural commodity through and through and we treat it as such. And okay. So let's, let's talk, let's talk real quick about that. So you're sitting there, you made this decision a few years ago, you're going to be on the hemp for fiber and oil side, not medical marijuana. I assume there's some differences on licensing or whatever, right? For permits and whatever. Okay. So you're in Florida and you said, I'm going to do this. And how did you begin? Did you go and say, I'm going to buy 150 acres and do this? Did you say, I'm going to go contract with a couple of farmers to grow me uh, this many acres worth? Give me the, give me the whole background. Ag people love to hear this. Yeah. So we, we started off with the assumption that uh, everything starts with a seed. And uh, when you go around looking for qualified seed, it, it just doesn't exist. You, uh, you know, there's no federally certified seed. There's no regulation or standard standards around it. So there's so much bad seed on the market. So we figured, uh, first things first, we got to have good seed. So we went in there, we, uh, started a breeding program to address that issue. You know, there, there are some good quality fiber and grain seeds on the market because they've been in production longer with, because obviously the Netherlands and France and a few other places didn't ever go to the full prohibition on hemp. So they've had those varieties that have been stabilized and used over years. But as far as CBD specific, there aren't stable genetics. So that was our first order of business is we had to get a high quality seed that would germinate at a, a commensurate rate with the federal seed act. So it could become certified one day. And then in CBD production, we also have the issue of feminization as only female plants produce the, the CBD oil. So we had to get stable lineages that are of high quality in both germination and feminization so that we knew we weren't putting a substandard product on the market. And that was kind of the natural bottleneck to the industry. There just wasn't enough high quality seed available for a purchase. And uh, I think that goes into some of the, of the nascency of the industry. I think, uh, I think it's fascinating that we still sell seeds by the individual count of seeds. Then name another agricultural product where you're buying seeds at a per seed price rather than a weight. It just doesn't exist. So it's still so much in, in development, but it started with the seeds and then uh, going out from there, we, we started to integrate down the supply chain and ultimately looking at just uh, biomass origination and processing into to bulk midstream derivatives for whatever the in-use manufacturer desires. Okay, so you're an ag person and you're like, I got this. I think this is what we got to do. So then does Greenpoint Research, it's a company that's basically you and a couple of other people at this point? We started out with uh, three of us and now with 
uh, employees and full-time consultants that we've had hired. We're about 30. Um, we, we self-funded from 2016 to the end of 2018. Then we took a seed round of investment of $8 million, some, some private financiers to scale operations and production. Okay. So 30 employees, you were funded just by you and a couple of other guys that you were working with, your agronomist and, and this kind of thing. And you set up this company and then you said, let's go and get some money raised. What do you, did, did you buy land? Did you buy a processing plant? All of the above? Tell me about that. Uh, the first thing we did is, yeah, we secured a, a site for a processing plant and then started the investment in the large scale processing equipment because uh, there's a, a, a tremendous lead time. A lot of this technology is novel uh, to the industry and, and still being developed. And, you know, some of it has applications in other agriculture. I mean, rising film evaporation has been used in dairy for years. And, you know, some of this technology is uh, applicable from other ag sectors, but still it's a, a novel application. So there's a tremendous lead time in the processing for the CB. CBD oil. So we started there after we secured a site and started working through the engineering to make sure we have a CGMP and ISO 9001 certified facility. It's a, you know, food grade processing facility that has to meet all the standards that any other uh, sector would meet. Okay, and, David, hang on a second. So you started doing that. Did you have actual hemp plants ready to take to your processing plant? Uh, no, so we 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 staged it out. So we we the two tracks joint, running jointly. We added uh, seed production capacity out in Colorado to scale up the uh, seed volume for us, so that we would have enough to meet the processing capacity on the back end once it becomes operational at the end of this year, quarter one. Uh, of next year. So we don't have any plants yet because that's one of the great things about hemp is that they cultivate or they grow so fast. It's a high yield, uh, you know, fast finishing plant, especially with the methodology we use in Florida, where we have a nursery operations kickstarted or once we transplant from nursery operations, we're only in the field eight weeks before we harvest. Okay. So that's how it's going to work. So when your when your facility is completely up and running, David, uh, and ready to take these, uh, these hemp plants and process them, you're going to already have ready staged out a greenhouse that you contracted with presumably that's going to grow all these with your seeds. So you just go and pay them so much per plant space or so much per ton or whatever. So that we actually is. purchased the greenhouse. So we're, we purchased a, a nursery facility, a 30 acre nursery site um, with 200, about 200,000 square feet, a greenhouse and another 500,000 square feet, a, a shade house. Okay. So you'll need to, when it's time, or maybe it's already working you have employees in there doing something right now. So it's still currently operating as a ornamental flower facility and it's distributing uh, orchids and other things to Costco and other uh, large purchasers at the moment. And so, um, the, so you left the operators in place and then you said, when we're ready to go, uh, half of these greenhouses aren't going to have orchids anymore. They're going to have hemp plants. And then do those people stay on or what's your managerial look yes. like? Absolutely. So that's our goal is uh, one of our models is we aim to come in and supplement existing agribusinesses and, and help backfill, uh, you know, capacity from, uh, you know, whether it's been trade issues or pests or disease or whatever's caused the, the depression. And a lot of these businesses, we, we hope we can kind of fit into that. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, not even with the CBD crop, but with the fiber crop is so valuable is that it's an amazing cover crop. Recent USDA data says 41% of all farmers can't find cover crops and I think that fundamentally is because they've been derived probably the superior cover crop for over 80 years now. And that's why I think you're going to see the real market growth, not even just in the CBD, but the 
but the fiber, the grain, the energy, and, and those other sectors long-term, because it has tremendous implications in additives, manufacturing, in, you know, coal substitutes for power plants, uh, you know, just general biomass production. I, I think it, it, it addresses- so since, since I'm a farm guy and we're talking about the process and all my listeners are saying, okay, then what happens? So then you get these plants from the greenhouse that you guys now own, and then you're going to then have, what happens from there? In Florida, where we have uh, low seasonality and a different photo period than most of the rest of the country, we'll, we'll transplant them into the field. Uh, and then in eight weeks, we'll harvest them. We do compliance testing weekly to make sure that we don't ever cross the federal THC threshold of 0.3 to make sure, what, you know, in the industry, we call it having hot plants. And that's a disaster because obviously you have to destroy those, that plant material and then it's a total loss. So we, we test weekly to mitigate that and then we harvest it. Um, and this is a unique situation for Florida where we have high humidity and high rainfall is that we have to actually do an extra step where we dry it uh, mechanically as opposed to field redding it in a lot of other areas where they just silage chop it or whatever and leave it in the field for a week or so to, to dry. Uh, but then once it's dried, then we'll, we'll mill it, we'll take it, we'll mill it, and then we'll put it in our extraction machine and we'll run it. And then we'll get what we call a crude oil out, which is the first run pass. And then we can then refine it into different, uh, grades of distillate or isolate, depending on what the purchaser is looking for. Okay. I want to go through this real quickly again, because, you know, ag people love the process of uh, from seed to, to product. Okay. You take the seed to the greenhouse, greenhouse grows it. How long does it take until the thing is ready to go from seed in, in a greenhouse till then you take it out of the greenhouse to a field? Six weeks okay. from, from seeding to, to transport. And then transport and they go into a field, you put them in rows. Uh, is, there, is it manually done? Is it done uh, with tractors you know, and seeders? You know, we'll tra- yeah, we'll have a transplanter that'll it'll be in one inch by, you know, we put them in the 72 pack trays, one inch by one inch root cubes, and then use a transplanter. And then a person has to pull those little things out and stick them in the transplanter, or is that done automatically? Uh, it depends on what machine is using it. You know, it all, it, you know, the favorite thing to say for, to a farmer is it depends because, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, you know, it really does depend on what equipment they have. You know, obviously we don't, well, you know, we have our own preferences, but we're not going to go make someone buy a half million dollar implement when they have something else that'll work. Uh, okay. So, so they put them in the ground, whether they, however they do it. And then they're in the ground, you said only for about another couple months, eight weeks, yeah, eight weeks. So it's then, six weeks to transplant and then eight weeks to harvest. And then at the harvest, they're harvested again, go through that real quickly and to get them from that to the plant, to, to the processing facility. Yeah. So we do, uh, we have dryers that, uh, use natural gas and we heat it to a specific, uh, temperature because at over a certain temperature, this, the cannabinoids start to degrade in the plant yeah. as it goes through a process called decarboxylation. But how do they get from the field to the processing facility? Yeah. So, it, you know, uh, harvesting methodologies, again, depend on what equipment they have. You know, we, we like a, a silage chopper and then we'll fill up the, the semi. And then w- once we have the, the silage, uh, biomass bio will then take it into our processing facility where we'll uh, micronize it or mill it into a very fine uh, powder and then we'll put it in our vats that will then be put into the, the cryoethanol extraction process, uh, which will then ultimately yield a first run crude oil. And then we can refine that further into different uh, grades of distillate and isolate. Fantastic. Okay. Now, you get this product and you don't actually have the product yet or do you have your first batch done? Uh, so we, we've done sample batches with other groups through partner labs and, and partner manufacturers. We have uh, 
some soft up gel pills that we've already manufactured, but uh, we don't have anything available in Florida right now. All we have for sale are seeds um, as we're, we're still waiting for some of the regulations in Florida to turn over. Um, but after the farm bill passed in 2018, uh, we worked hand in hand with the Florida legislature to pass uh, Senate bill 1020, which uh, outlined the full commercial production uh, guidelines for hemp in the state here. We're undergoing rulemaking process. We've already been given draft rules. We've issued notice and comment. So we're uh, anticipating uh, planting at commercial scale, hopefully mid-October, uh, but definitely before the end of the year, if you're talking to the commissioner of agriculture or her director of cannabis. You're saying, uh, that, you're, you're saying that in two months, you're going to do a full-blown planting in two months there in Florida with the, with the plants ready to, and then with the idea that by december they're going to your facility to be processed so this will happen before the end of this year we're hopeful and it might be q1 of 2020 you, you know with uh, unfortunately everything moves at the speed of government and when you're uh, uh waiting for regulations to pass and you need inspections and all, you know the whole nine that comes with compliance you know it could always delay further but we're, you know we always want to Hope for the best. Uh, my ag people are probably wondering, they're listening, they're saying, okay, what if I want to grow for this guy? Uh, what, how do you pay him? Do you pay him by the acre and then, or do you pay him by acre with a bonus on being productive or how, how is how do you see this happening? You're going to obviously need more acres to funnel into your processing facility. Am I right, David? Yes, absolutely. And we plan to continually scale the processing to we're already looking at additional sites uh, around the state and around the Southeast uh, United States in general. You see Greenpoint That's Research having more than one processing facility in another couple of years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We already have uh, sites picked out uh, for the secondary position here in Florida, and then we, we're finalizing site selection at other places as well. So we, we fully intend on having multiple uh, extraction facilities. Got it. So if someone says, okay, I want to be one of your, I want to be one of your subs. I want to grow or do you just hire them to grow it? Or do you just say you grow it and then we'll buy it off you? What do you see happening for the business? Yeah. So we, we do have a, a standard contract farming, uh, you know, template agreement that we use. And, uh, and you talking about how do you get paid for CBD specifically, the most predominant marketing contracts are, are basically paid as a percentage of CBD in the plant. So there's usually assigned a dollar value per percent per pound of biomass that you buy. So if you have a 10%, uh, if you have biomass, that's 10% CBD by dry weight volume, then each pound of that biomass is going to cost $10. If you have one that's 15%, each one of those uh, at, a, at a dollar per percent, if we're just using, but that's not even where the market is. If you look at some of the hemp benchmark data, the really the cost per percent of CBD is really between three and $4 per percent per pound. So you're talking about 30 to $40 pounds of biomass uh, right now for farmers where, you know, you were potential yields anywhere of, you know, 2,500 to 5,000 pounds of biomass per acre, depending on, you know, crop management and, and density and everything. So uh, you can kind of start to see the, the value proposition that there's for farmers. But hey, I'm sure run those I want to run those numbers again. Give me the two numbers. I got to take times each other. So it's uh, the percent. Uh, it's a dollar. Yeah, per percent. Per percent of CBD in the dry weight of the biomass. So... 
and it's not, I'm not, I'm just using the dollar for simple math here. Because sure. Like I said, it's actually a higher value right now, but so you, you take the dollar value and then whatever the quality of the biomass is, whether it's 8%, 10%, 15%, which would be okay. a very elite biomass is 15, okay. you know, anything over 10% is very good quality biomass. Okay. So a dollar times 10%, that's $10 per uh, dry weight pound, right? Yes. Okay. And then the pounds per acre dry equivalent are how much? Uh, so pounds per equivalent, uh, at an acre, it can be depending on what you're growing in density, say 2,500 to 5,000 pounds an acre. You know, some people are getting way more, but I think you get, there's a lot of confusion still where people will give, uh, their wet biomass weight for yields. And then that's yeah. not of value because you can't extract wet biomass. So are we saying we can make thousands and thousands of dollars per acre? Is that what I'm hearing here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, un, it's, it's unlike anything you've seen in traditional agriculture. I mean, okay. This, the CBD value for, per acre is unbelievable. If you can market it, see, that's the other thing. Is are we so going to get to, are we going to get to where David, that we have a surplus of CBD oil? I mean, obviously it's happened with corn, wheat, soybeans, uh, milk. I mean, everything, everything we get so darn good at producing it. Are we going to have a glut? Uh, yeah, I think that's a natural uh, direction of any commodity is that as there's a value or you know, there's a value proposition or they see profits, it's going to naturally attract uh, a, a larger number of producers until we reach that, that saturation. But I, I you know, every, like I said, again, there's, there's so many other cannabinoids. So it's not just CBD where I think it, this hype cycle around CBD kind of pushes the market as a whole sure, um, and into other things where farmers will start there, but then they'll pivot into other things. I mean, so David, you're um, a sharp guy, you're a sharp guy. You saw opportunity. You still see opportunity. You're an entrepreneur in agriculture. What other uses do you see? Okay. I see it for my Sanook shoes for the hemp fiber. I wear those uh, shoes and I love them. Uh, I see, fiber because we can push the natural thing. I mean, right now, how do you say we should use polyester? We should use all this uh, man-made fiber out of petroleum products. If you're an environmentalist, you should be all about hemp and cotton and wool. I see that as an uh, opportunity. What else? Where else do we use? Where else do we use this? You think down the road? I think, uh, you know, when you talk about biomass, I think the, the construction sector is, is, is huge. They're, I've been all over the world and I've looked at some very interesting use cases where they're pressing it into oriented shiv board, uh, you know, like, a you know, play traditional uh, wood chips. And so, you know, four by eight sheets of basically plywood and because it has a high mold resistance, generally better than wood. Uh, so especially in, in Southern climates and stuff, I think the construction applications between that and the ability to make rolled insulation are huge. Uh, and then additives manufacturing, the, the, the ability to turn it into biochar and the, or the residual waste from using it as an energy product. A lot of people are putting it into briquettes and so it's a clean burning, low ash substitute for coal burning power plants. Uh, when you talk oh. about the ability to add cover crops all over, I think that that's a huge issue when it comes to sustainability and renewable uh, energy. Does hemp, what does hemp take from the soil? You know, if I put corn or sunflowers out, uh, I need a lot of nitrogen. If I put out different crops that take different things, is hemp going to be hard on the ground for any particular reason? I know it's supposedly very drought tolerant. Oh, it, it is very drought tolerant. It's uh, it sequesters carbon at an extremely efficient rate. So, I mean, I've got, and not to be too pie in the sky, but we might be using it just to car farm carbon in the near future. I know there's lots of grant programs and other things that are coming on board about uh, funding carbon sequestration 
you know, so that's a potential value chain. But yeah, no, right now, very, right now, for instance, on. like, you know, uh, David, up in Alberta, they, I sat in a session once that they have a carbon tax and then they have a thing where they're paying farmers to do what they can to sequester carbon. So you're saying that if the environmental push continues to be that we've got to do something about the carbon dioxide, you're saying we might just hire somebody on some marginal acres that don't get a lot of rain and say, just grow a whole bunch of hemp here. And that way it sequesters carbon. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting things about hemp is it has, if you double the latent level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, its photosynthesis rate more than doubles and its actual water usage decreases, but still yielding quality biomass. Uh, so when we talk about uh, how, how we address some of these major issues we have globally, I think hemp plays an important part in it. And, uh, and yeah, it, it will. It's, it sequesters carbon at an extremely efficient rate, and it is nitrogen fixing. It returns a ton to the soil. It's not a, it's not a degenerative crop, so it can be used in rotation to boost yields of other crops. This is fantastic, by the way. That's why I wanted to see about the future. Okay, closing thoughts. Greenpoint Research founder David Hasenauer He's, uh, he's a hemp guy, and I'm really glad he came on the show because I do see this as a growth category. Uh, is it going to overtake uh, corn and, and canola and cattle? Probably not right, right now, and maybe never, but I do see it as a growth category. Closing thoughts on hemp, David. Yeah, I, exactly. It is a growth category. I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned the soy uh, production in the U.S. And, and how the boost in soy production really basically started at the prohibition of hemp. And uh, and I do that. It does. It has major implications. I think uh, we're going to see a lot of, that's why we're Greenpoint Research is uh, hemp was basically artificially derived uh, or artificially neglected uh, during the green revolution. When we saw all this amazing breakthroughs in crop science over the last century, uh, one of the most diverse and incredible plants we have has been left out of it. So the, the future uh, is very bright because I think we're still going to develop the best germplasm. We're still going to develop the best processing techniques. It's, uh, it's such a high value now, even as it is, and we haven't even gotten into some of the more exciting use cases. I know people in New York are already creating super capacitors out of uh, nanotubules derived from hemp. So there's just, I think it truly is almost an endless market, and we might not get all the way to corn, but the fact that it can be used in rotation with everything could also mean we go way past corn, which is an interesting thought. So I love it. I love it. All right. It can be very, I'm very bullish on it in short. I'm I'm gathering that if anybody wants to look you up so they can learn more about it, like I did, they find you at uh, Greenpoint research, give me the website. Yeah. Greenpointresearch.com. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn. David Hasenauer, H A S E N A U E R. Thanks for being on the uh, business of agriculture. Thank you for having me, Damien. This was great. All right. Till next time. Thanks for joining me here. We talk about issues involved with the business of agriculture. Till next time.